Mental Health Voice, Episode 3, Behavioral Health Integration. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How do you make patients feel more comfortable and make better use of the physician's time, all while providing top quality mental health services in rural communities? Psychologist James Worth joined me to discuss the benefits of a special kind of one-stop shopping. Hello, Jim. Hi, Beth. Now, I have your title as Behavioral Health and Wellness Service Director. What does that whole mouthful mean? Well, when I first started talking with my CEO, Mr. Malcolm Perdue, about coming to work for Stone Mountain, uh, coming over to Stone Mountain from working at Radford University, um, I said that I wanted to be able to do more than just work in-house uh, around behavioral health issues. Um, I want, I thought that there was more going on in people's lives. And if we wanted to look at people holistically, we needed to broaden beyond our walls. And so we, we were talking about what now is, are called social determinants of health, um, and looking at thinking about, uh, thinking about people holistically, uh, and came up with the idea of wellness, which is not a new term, but, uh, thought that that would be a nice, uh, all encompassing, uh, way of thinking about um, working in-house on behavioral health and the broader idea of social determinants of health, as well as being able to um, go outside the organization and work in the community and, and collaborate with other organizations uh, and, and do outreach and, and so on uh, around these other pieces. And so that's where the wellness comes in. Okay. So taking it to the people. Yes. And collaborating with other people who are doing that work as well, because, you know, we're, there's lots of people doing great stuff out there and lots of organizations. And so this sort of gives me the leeway to be out in the community as opposed to just in my office all the time. Terrific. And you do all this with Stone Mountain Health Services. Tell me a little bit about that clinic. Actually, it's more than one clinic, right? It's a group of clinics and, you know, the people that Stone Mountain serves. Uh, Stone Mountain Health Services uh, is the name that we go by. The technical name is St. Charles Health Council. And that name came from the our first clinic started back in 1976 was in St. Charles, Virginia. Um, and uh, it was set up as a community health center or what's now called a federally qualified health center, which means that we receive federal money um, to allow us to serve everybody regardless of the ability to their ability to pay so we don't turn anybody away and um the first clinic being in st charles we came up with this name saint the organization was st charles health council but then not long after that other clinics that were sort of struggling wanting to meet the community's needs but didn't have that federal support and so when somebody would come in who wasn't able to pay um there would of course be a problem with the bottom line and so over time um once we branched out beyond St. Charles, we had to change the name. And so the name now is Stone Mountain Health Services because of the name of the mountain out here. And we've grown to 11 medical clinics and two respiratory care or black lung clinics spread across seven of the westernmost counties in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, and we provide um, medical, primary medical care, behavioral health care, 
um, the respiratory care or care for the um, people with with black lung and other respiratory diseases. And then um, off and on, we've um, had dental services as well. Dental is is sort of a off again, on again. It's really hard to to uh, try and find dentists who will stay. Uh, and so right now we do not have a dentist, um, but we're hoping to start that up again. Now, the CDC estimates that a quarter of the U.S. population has some sort of mental illness and nearly half of us will experience mental illness in our lifetimes. How do you see that play out in the rural community? I'll have to sort of generalize here. So please accept that this is uh, these comments will be somewhat stereotypical. But in general, in rural areas, the sort of the cultural assumption is that folks in, in rural areas um, uh, tend to be more independent or interdependent um, on each other. Uh, and there's more of a sense of um, being self-sufficient or the rugged, sort of that idea of rugged individualism, where people take care of themselves or their families take care of each other. And they're less likely to reach out uh, beyond their walls. And if they do, um, they're uh, tend to go maybe to their, if they're uh, religious or spiritual, to their religious leader for help, um, or maybe to a medical provider. And so what, what we see overall is that more people go to uh, their primary care providers um, uh, than they do to specialty mental health. And we, uh, that's across the country as a whole. And then when you narrow it down to rural, that's even more exaggerated. So in rural areas to an even greater extent, people who have mental health issues, that's most typically depression, some form of depression or some form of anxiety, um, including reactions to trauma. Um, they're m- more likely to go it, into their medical clinic uh, and get some help, typically medication, as opposed to going to the community services board or um, a private office of, of somebody, um, especially because of the what's called the fishbowl phenomenon in rural areas where everybody knows everybody and is paying attention. And so there's um, uh, because of some of the stigma associated with seeing mental health professionals, uh, the folks are a little nervous about having their vehicle parked in the CSB parking lot or um, in the, um, the outside the office of a counselor or um, therapist. Uh, and so here again, they're less likely to go and seek those services because they don't want other people in their business um, about that. Uh, so the these the numbers that you quoted um, uh, are uh, um, overall the, the there's no real difference in terms of incidence of mental health issues in in rural areas versus urban areas, but there's a, a bit of a difference in terms of the the percent who will actually seek specialty mental health services in rural areas versus urban areas. Um, and instead, either we'll go it on their own, um, we'll wait for a crisis to happen in order to, before seeking services, um, or we'll seek services um, through a, a, a minister or other a religious leader or through, um, again, med- medical help as opposed to uh, seeing the specialist, behavioral health specialist. So if you're someone in a rural area that's struggling with, say, depression or anxiety, knowing that everybody's going to know you're seeking help for depression or anxiety probably isn't going to help. Right. And so so what we see is that people 
hold on, you know, try and fight it as long as they can, either by themselves or with their family. Um, or um, when they finally get overwhelmed, um, then maybe they'll go in and they'll they'll see their family um, medical provider and say, I need some medication. And they they might not even call it depression or anxiety or nerves or anything like that. It might be that they're having headaches or um, they're feeling tired all the time or something along those lines. And so it's, it's, it's being um, manifested and, and explained in a physical way as opposed to a mental way. And so then they, uh, or a psychological way. And so then they um, end up getting medication, maybe the correct medication, maybe it, they do get an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, um, or maybe they get something for headaches instead of for, um, you know, for anxiety. Um, but in any event, they're less likely than to get talk to somebody like me, a psychologist, um, or to a counselor or social worker um, because they're being treated with pills as opposed to um, it being any sort of talk therapy. Mm-hmm. So thinking down that road, does it seem like, you know, in some ways behavioral health problems are you know, a lot like other physical problems where the longer you ignore the problem, the worse it's going to get, you know, whether you're talking about heart disease or diabetes or depression, I'm thinking avoiding the problem isn't going to help anybody. Yeah, I think there, there, uh, let me back up and I'll say yes and no. Um, there is some literature to indicate that, um, Depression comes in waves, and so there's the possibility that depending on the type of depression that somebody has, if they can ride it out for six or eight months, then maybe it'll get a little bit better. Um, but those can be a really, really bad six to eight months, and we know that some, at least some people with depression um, end up uh, attempting to hurt themselves um, or potentially hurt other people. And so... Um, even though theoretically it's possible that the depression may remit down the road, um, that's a lot of suffering to go through in the meantime. Um, anxiety is a little bit different in that um, uh, setting aside trauma for a second, even just general social anxiety, anxiety being in, in public places and so on, um, that tends to, to actually um, – get worse um, over time because it's almost self-reinforcing in terms of um, feeling anxious and then trying to avoid the anxiety, feeling a little bit better, and so then not wanting to experience that anxiety again, so then trying to avoid those situations um, even more and so forth. And so we, you can see where uh, it's almost a self-fulfilling or self-defeating situation with anxiety. Um, and then trauma is uh, it's a uh, – form of anxiety and for many people also has some depression as well for some uh, where people um, they experience a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events and then they depending on what what the event was there might be some shame or blame involved and so then they um, don't talk to anybody and um, are dealing with this on their own and then that just can can really build over time until you have what you hear in the, in the media about post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD where the symptoms have just built up over time and, and the person is, is um, overwhelmed um, and can be overwhelmed in many respects. 
At the Virginia Role Collaborators Conference, you're going to be leading a session titled Behavioral Health Integration Return on Investment. So let's break that down. What is behavioral health integration? So I'll tell you how um, I define it and we define it here in our organization and in, in some of the other federally qualified health centers um, who also do what, what we call behavioral health integration. Um, remember that I said that uh, when we first, when you first asked me about my title, I said that I was meeting with my CEO about bringing behavioral health into the clinics. Well, behavioral health integration um, is uh, the idea of integrating behavioral health, which means uh, mental health services and substance abuse services, whether it be offered by a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker or a counselor or a marriage and family therapist or a nurse practitioner or physician assistant with specialized um, psychiatric training, regardless of who provides it, the idea of bringing those uh, mental health and substance abuse services into the primary care medical clinic so that uh, a person can get holistic care, so they can see their um, physician or their nurse practitioner or PA for their diabetes, and then they can also have an appointment with me or one of my colleagues um, for their depression or anxiety um, as well. Um, instead of having to go somewhere else to get that treatment, um, they can get it all on one day or at least all in one site where, um, going back to that idea of stigma, um, where they can park in the same parking lot as their neighbor, they get called back by the same nurse, um, regardless of whether they're seeing their medical provider or me, so nobody knows that they're receiving mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment because they it looks just like any other patient, just like any other day that they've been here, um, regardless of who they see. And so by, by integrating behavioral health into the primary care clinics, we can address stigma and many of the other issues that tend to keep people from, from seeing um, behavioral health providers. It also allows the medical provider um, to uh, focus on what they are best at, which is medical conditions, and then refer those folks who have the behavioral health pieces that they're less well-trained in and less experienced in um, to, to those of us who have years of training specifically in that. And so not only do the patients win, but the medical providers also win uh, because they are able to uh, focus on, on their areas, refer the, the folks to us who um, um, have specific needs, and then the medical providers and, and the behavioral health providers can work together, um, hopefully in a seamless way, um, in order to um, talk to each other through the medical record or in person about um, how to address the person's whole um, um, system of care. So their mental health, their any substance abuse issues, their medical care, maybe bring in their family members um, and how they can be helpful in say, working with this person, um, helping this person who has diabetes and depression, um, uh, those kinds of things. Um, and so by um, um, integrating the behavioral health people, providers into the clinics, um, we know from the research that um, patients like it, providers like it, um, insurance companies tend to like it. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of um, benefits um, internally and um, externally as well um, to try and, and um, meet the needs of the uh, individuals and, and the communities, uh, the rural communities as a whole. I hope that addressed your question.
Oh yeah. So, so I'm hearing better confidentiality for the patients, better use of the healthcare providers, medical providers time, better communication between the medical provider and the mental health provider. And it might even be keeping the insurance companies happy as well. I, that sounds like a win all the way around. Exactly. And that's why it's been, uh, there's been so much attention given to it uh, in, um, at least in the behavioral health world, the American Psychological Association, American Counseling Association, National Association for Social Workers, American Psychiatric Association are all focusing on this, as well as the on the medical side too, the American Medical Association, American Nurses, Nurses Association, all have been talking about the benefits of um, integrating behavioral health into medical practice because they're um, in most respects, there there isn't a downside um, because of the, um, the 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 pros to the um, all the different parts of the system. The where the problem comes in, and this is the second part of your <laughs> of the title, the return on investment. Part of the issue go, actually does go back to insurance, and it's that um, historically um, behavioral health is not well uh, reimbursed, so medical is fine for the most part, um, but there tends to be less um, uh, the amount of reimbursement for behavioral health tends to be lower and there are more barriers put in the way and more hurdles. And so it's often hard for places to figure out a way to make behavioral health be um, um, sustainable or cost cost effective, even though in the big picture, there are, cost savings for insurance companies and hospitals and even, and um, potentially the clinics themselves. Um, there also um, is the potential for there to be, um, for there to be a problem with the bottom line um, because of uh, barriers to reimbursement. And so the, the delegate balancing act that uh, medical organizations have is um, this is a great idea. We like it in theory, but how do we make it work on the ground um, when we have, you know, all these additional staff people to, to pay and Medicare or Medicaid or the insurance companies aren't willing to, to reimburse at the appropriate level or reimburse for the services um, or reimburse um, on the same day um, that, uh, which is one of the supposed to be one of the best benefits of um, integration is that you could come in and see your medical provider and your behavioral health provider on the same day. So you don't have to make two trips but if an insurance company isn't going to reimburse, is will pay for the medical visit, but not the behavioral health visit, then the organization that ha- is almost is you know absorbing the the cost of that um, behavioral health provider without getting reimbursed. So there's some some potential barriers there um, as well. But in theory, it's uh, there's there in theory everybody wins, and all the organizations are really happy about it. Uh, about the possibility of working together and um, uh, everybody sort of being able to practice to the highest level of their license and and um, being able to take advantage of of uh, the multidisciplinary or interprofessional care. Um, it just sometimes comes down to the the financial bottom line. So it sounds like there's still work to be done from a policy perspective, and you're getting insurance companies to see the light on that. Yes, the. Um, there are different types of codes that can be used for um, behavioral health services. And I'm going to be a little bit esoteric here. Um, in the original 
model, behavioral health integration model, was developed in urban areas. Um, and in urban areas, the tradition, this, this traditional behavioral health integration model is called the primary care behavioral health model, PCBH. Um, in that traditional model, the idea is the, is, I'll use myself as an example. I, as the psychologist, um, the physician or nurse practitioner would call me up, um, and say, Hey, I have a patient I need you to see. Um, I would go in, I would see that patient for maybe 10 minutes, um, and then, um, let the um, primary care provider, medical provider know that I, uh, what I thought the issue was. The medical provider would tell me what they wanted me to do um, as the behavioral health person. And I would then maybe see that patient two or three times for 10 minutes at a time. And then that would, and then if there was any more services that were needed, um, uh, I would refer out to community mental health. Um, and so in a big city, that's fine where you have, um, you know, 10 or 15 medical providers in a clinic and there are um, specialties there and I could refer out to the community for, for those folks who have the, that severe depression or trauma I was talking about earlier. That, that model works fine even if the, the reimbursement levels are fairly low um, because the volume is so great and the, um, uh, the complicated cases can can be referred out um, in a rural area however um, where uh, we'll take our organization for example I mentioned that we have 11 uh, medical clinics most of those are one or two medical providers and looking at the literature the all, almost all the literature says that there need to be at least four or maybe five medical providers for each behavioral health provider um, to make the, for there to be enough referrals. So if I'm in a clinic with only one medical provider, then there's just not enough, uh, referrals for me to stay busy all the time. And so therefore I'm not generating revenue. Um, but even if I am generating revenue for a 10 or 12 minute appointment, I can, there's only certain codes that I can bill for that. Um, and those reimburse very poorly, if at all. Uh, and so they just aren't, it's just not sustainable in a rural area to do that pure primary care behavioral health model where it's only a few sessions and I am dependent upon the referrals from the medical provider. So many of us in rural areas, at least here in Virginia, sort of the, the standard model is what, um, what we at Still Mountain call a hybrid model, but others call a community focused model where we do both the the brief primary care appointments, but we also do traditional outpatient therapy. So in many of our clinics, um, our psychologists and social workers are, have a, a very heavy caseload of people with trauma because we don't have um, places in the community to refer uh, folks who, especially those who can't pay. Uh, they don't have, you know, they don't have insurance, so they're self-pay. Um, and so, uh, our, what, what we have done with this hybrid model is take what we believe is the best of both worlds, where we take the traditional outpatient, uh, model of behavioral health, but put it in the medical clinic. So here again, we get around the stigma and those kinds of things and, um, get the folks into the clinic, um, as well as make ourselves available to the medical providers for those brief more medical uh, oriented sessions where we're, we only have, you know, we see somebody for uh, a couple of sessions to help with um, diabetes management and so on. And then 
we can build both the brief medical codes if we want to, as well as the traditional outpatient codes, which are reimbursed at a, at a more sustain, at a level that makes it sustainable um, to have the behavioral health providers um, in-house. So then what happens is um, I, I basically, my schedule is, uh, as a behavioral health provider, my schedule throughout the day is split into standard appointments, sort of standard outpatient appointments, and same day what we call warm handoff appointments where the medical provider hands off their patient to me to see right away um, because they're right there in the clinic and, and I have access to them. We may not get reimbursed very well for that um, brief session, that, that medical session, but we get reimbursed enough for those traditional outpatient sessions um, to balance everything out. And so then here again, it's it's a, a hybrid um, of the outpatient model, the specialty model, and uh, the um, brief therapy sort of um, primary care behavioral health model, um, in which case, again, we're, we're trying to figure out a way for everybody to win and for it to be financially sustainable in the world that we're in where insurance companies decide what they want to do. I hope that wasn't too much. No, it's great. I love it. So what suggestions do you have for people who are concerned about, you know, what's going on with our, in our hometowns in terms of access to behavioral health care? What, what actions can they take? Well, I, um, I'll actually back up. You asked me first about behavioral health and wellness services, and I talked about going out into the communities. Um, I think the first thing that people can do is get educated themselves about behavioral health. Um, so whether it be their own or their family members, they can um, figure out when maybe somebody might need some additional assistance. Um, but then also be a, get some, uh, if there, if people are willing to get some additional training, um, so that they can be aware of what's happening in, um, with their neighbors and others. And there's, um, uh, something called mental health first aid, which is an eight hour training. And there's actually a rural focused mental health first aid, uh, for rural communities where people spend time learning about, um, how, um, behavioral health issues present themselves, um, sort of how to, how to ask people if they need help, um, how to determine maybe if they might be thinking about hurting themselves. And so therefore needing to call in some specialists, um, to, to help take care of that person. But really to, um, um, through mental health first aid or Red Cross training or just any, any sort of additional way of, of receiving information so that people can see what's going on in themselves and others and be helpful and not stigmatizing. Um, I think that would be one thing. I think um, another thing would be um, encouraging the local um, sheriffs um, or police department um, and EMS um, to get um, CIT or crisis intervention training. Um, this has been shown to be very effective in helping um, with de-escalation when um, the first responders have some interaction with somebody who is experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, and we know um, that over the years, um, a large number of the people who end up getting um, into altercations and maybe shot um, by police um, are people with mental health issues. 
And we've seen from the data that um, those um, sheriffs and police officers who have CIT training are less likely to have to resort to force because they're able to talk the person down in some respects and, and um, de-escalate the situation. So that would be a second thing that I think people could do in their community, which um, is really just um, encouraging their local um, yeah, first responders to get some addition, some training themselves, some specialized training themselves. Um, and then another th- third thing would be to um, talk with their legislators, their state, um, potentially federal, but more likely their local legislators about the need for adequate funding for behavioral health services. Um, many folks may have heard of um, uh, Cree Deeds, who um, is a legislator here in Virginia, a state legislator here in Virginia, who um, uh, had a tragedy befall him um, when his son um, had a mental health crisis and um, attacked um, Mr. Deeds and then took it, and then his son took his own life. And now Mr. Deeds has um, taken it on himself to try and help reform the system. Um, but even with all those efforts, there still is a lack of, there's a lack of inpatient beds, especially um, in rural areas. And there's certainly a lack of substance abuse treatment. And so um, people who have substance uh, misuse issues, whether it be opioids or meth um, or something else, um, have a hard time finding treatment um, just because there's not enough um, resources. And it's easy to, to take resources from mental health and move it somewhere else. Um, and so being advocates for um, appropriate funding uh, and a, an appropriate array of services um, is another thing that, that people can do. And then also, finally, uh, taking steps themselves, perhaps, to be good uh, role models uh, for um, self-care, taking care of themselves. If they find that they need help, then seeking that help out. And to the extent that they feel comfortable, um, letting people know that they um, received services and that it was helpful for them. Or at the very least, um, letting people know that there are services available, um, hopefully um, through their community services board um, or through uh, federally qualified health centers like us um, that are in many of most. I think almost all the federally qualified health centers across the state have some behavioral health access, whether it be in person or using technology. Um, and so just letting people know that resources are, are around so that um, folks don't feel like they have to suffer in silence. All right. And if you could do anything, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural Virginia? I would go back to the getting adequate funding and appropriate array of services. Uh, it's in rural areas. I can sort of talk and consult with um, behavioral health folks um, across the state in rural areas. And it, it comes down to we don't have referral options. Um, who will take people who can't pay um, or are on Medicaid. And now with the potential for Medicaid expansion, that's just even going to get exacerbated, um, the, the lack of ser- the potential issue with people with Medicaid who can't get service. Um, but then uh, there, the four folks who are really struggling, whether it be with substance abuse or some more severe mental health issues, um, they're not being enough beds um, inpatient for them to be taken care of. And so what ends up happening by default is family members or friends or the community um, end up taking care of them or they're homeless um, and they're struggling on their own. So 
Um, I hate to say that it all comes down to funding, but in, in many respects, it's really hard to provide services um, when there aren't enough providers and there aren't enough um, uh, appropriate resources for referrals. You just imagine, you, you know, Beth, uh, what's happening with uh, medical hospitals closing in rural areas. Imagine if that hospital wasn't even there to begin with. Um, and that's the case. And that's the case with mental health. There, those, those, um, those resources for people who are really, really struggling just are not existent. Um, and so then folks have to suffer in silence or sort of piece things together. And then unfortunately, what, what can happen is somebody may end up taking their own life or hurting somebody else or dropping off the map because they, um, they, they end up, um, going homeless. Um, and so, um, I would say that's, that's one thing that I would look for. Um, I do have to say one more thing, which is, um, I just thought of this. Um, I want to emphasize that people, um, who are struggling with mental health issues, um, may be more likely to hurt themselves, but they are not more likely to hurt other people. So, um, in the news, like uh, lots of times in these shooting incidents, you hear, oh, this person had mental illness. Um, or you, um, people with mental illness get portrayed as being violent. But the research is really, really clear that people with mental illness are more likely to be victimized, um, by other people than to be aggressors. And so it's important that folks not be, not be, oh my, scared and, and run away from or assume that somebody with, who's having a mental health crisis or a, a mental illness is, um, uh, gonna be violent or, or hurt somebody else. Um, but that they, uh, what could be, um, any sort of, um, reaction like that, um, may just lead somebody to feel like they need to defend themselves. And so here again, that's where the crisis intervention training or the mental health first aid can come into play to help deescalate the situation instead of it getting worse and worse and somebody getting hurt. But I just, I just want to emphasize that, um, people with, um, who are uh, struggling with mental illness, actually are more likely to be victimized than to be aggressors. Um, and so I would want people to, to not be scared, but rather to, to try and help just like they would if somebody was having a heart attack um, or um, uh, having a seizure or something along those lines. You wouldn't run away from having a heart attack. You try and help them. Same sort of thing with somebody who might be struggling with a mental health crisis. And like a heart attack, it's easier to take action if you've been trained and know what to do. So sign up for those mental health first aid classes. There you go. Exactly. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Jim. We really appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thanks for asking me. That was Jim Worth encouraging you to get educated about mental health and talk to your elected officials. Speaking of which, Senator Cree Deeds will be a guest on this podcast in a few weeks because he is the keynote speaker at the 2018 Virginia Rural Collaborators Conference. To learn more about the event, visit brha.org and click the Events tab for details. The Virginia Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association. 